The university, which is an institution of higher education that awards academic degrees in a variety of disciplines and fields of study, is more than brick and mortar, curriculum and transcripts, and athletic programs and social networks. It is people, past, present, and future, who give it its unique identity and compelling sense of purpose as a learning community. It is a place with a history and geographic location shaped by its environment and surroundings. It also has a moral responsibility to serve the people and places in the region where it is located and beyond. The university is also an engaging conversation over a long period of time about the things that matter most. A convening place for probing timeless questions and exploring consequential ideas. Welcome to Campbell Conversations. I am Brad Creed, fifth president of Campbell University and the host for these conversations. Campbell is a thriving university village in a dynamic and changing rural setting located within one of the fastest growing metropolitan areas of the United States with connections around the world. What I just vocalized is my 11 second elevator speech. Every college president needs one and I minted mine on the third week of my new job. I think it captures both the complexity and cohesion of our university and reflects its place, which has been formative for us. Campbell's roots and identity are rural, as my elevator speech indicates. That is the focus of today's conversation. For most of its history, the majority of Campbell students have come here from tobacco and hog farms, crossroads villages, and small towns with active main streets throughout our state. That is still true, but it's changing as our student population diversifies and members of our community join us from large cities and other areas across the nation. Campbell's various healthcare programs, including our new School of Medicine, have a strong mission to provide primary care physicians and other health professionals to underserved areas. Just recently, the North Carolina General Assembly passed a pandemic relief package with a significant portion, $6 million, going to support Campbell University's medical work in rural communities. Campbell has even developed a sequence of courses that train students in research, analysis, communication, and leadership for working with rural communities and small towns. I have assisted in the development and delivery of these courses. There are other courses, programs, and initiatives in the university that focus on micropolitan communities. Our guest for Campbell Conversations is well qualified to speak to issues affecting rural regions and communities. He is Patrick Woody, president of the North Carolina Rural Center. Patrick, welcome to Campbell Conversations, and I thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Creed. Thank you for having me. It's an, it's an honor to join you on a Campbell um, podcast. Uh, we're just incredibly proud of that um, private university and the, the investments you've made and what you've built over the years at Campbell is a testament to what can be accomplished in a rural setting. Uh, and you built a great university. We're very proud of the work you do. Thank you so much. And um, we are real proud of the Rural Center. Um, it's been a great advocate for our state and helpful to us in our work. So tell us about the work of the Rural Center, how you got involved, and a brief description of its purpose and maybe some of your programs. 
Yeah, so my elevator speech is really uh, the, the North Carolina Rural Center. We're now in our 34th year, um, and we are a staff of about 33 people now that gets up every day and thinks about what are, what are the ways in which we can strengthen our rural communities and the people who call those rural communities home. How can we make their lives better and improve their lives? Um, and so that is our mission. That is our uh, focus. Uh, we do that in a variety of ways, but we've learned over time, when you look at rural economic development, there's kind of three major challenges that we return to all the time. And those are challenges around leadership, around building the capacity of our, our local governments and, and nonprofits and even this private enterprise uh, to really have capacity to meet the needs of their customers, the people they serve. Um, and then finally, how do, we, um, how do we create opportunities for rural communities to achieve economies of scale that really allow for better sustainability um, across private enterprise, nonprofits, local governments, and our, and our institutions that we rely on? Great. You um, do podcast yourself. I think you have some virtual speaker series coming up called Rural Talk, right? And people can yeah, go we to your do. website. But a little uh, bit about that. Sure. And our, our virtual series really is a direct result of the ways in which our organization is pivoting to respond to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic as it unfolds across North Carolina. Uh, typically, this time of year, we would be hosting a, a, a on Jones Street um, uh, advocacy day that we call Rural Day that really brings uh, some intense focus on the priority issues of rural North Carolina. This year, we can't do it in person in terms of that, that large convening that we're used to doing. So we decided to turn it into a five-part virtual series where we've got some great speakers uh, in uh, uh, several different areas of, uh, of particular interest to our, our, our rural audience. Uh, last week, we did our first one on broadband. We're getting ready to do one on small business development and entrepreneurship tomorrow. We have one coming up on healthcare, on housing, and also on the unique challenges that our uh, rural communities face with water and wastewater infrastructure. Good. Well, I encourage our listeners to tune into those and they can find out more at uh, the website for the Rural Center. Patrick, the, uh, the omnipresent and I might add what I think is oppressive topic of our day is COVID-19. Um, like the virus, which is highly contagious and spreads rapidly, there's no place you can go where there is not talk about this global pandemic and its effects. It's seen primarily as a public health issue, and it is, and uh, we had a podcast earlier uh, with some of our public health people about that as it relates to rural areas. But there are other aspects of public health and safety that are important, uh, social health, mental, economic. So how are rural communities and small towns faring during this time? And are you able to assess early on the economic and social impact on these regions? Well, you know, if we've learned anything about COVID-19 as this pandemic has unfolded across the globe, we've learned that one thing this virus loves is, is density, uh, which means that it arrived in our rural communities last. But uh, the, 
it clearly has arrived. It clearly is having some very specific and unique impacts within rural communities that I think we are beginning to understand what some of those unique challenges are and vulnerabilities and opportunities. Um, and I think all of those um, exist. One of our concerns has been because it was slow to get there, because the number of cases may seem relatively low, that our rural communities would feel uh, not as uh, not the sense of urgency that I think the pandemic really requires of, of every um, every community. Um, what we've seen in in really trying to look at the numbers, understand the trends, um, we have a an array of demographic factors that makes rural populations particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. We have a higher percentage of our population that is over the age of 65. Um, and as of last week, about 85% of all the deaths that have occurred in North Carolina as a result of COVID-19 are uh, people over the age of 65, and that's a disproportionate share of our rural population. So that's a great concern. Um, we also um, know that our uh, African-American uh, citizens are disproportionately affected, uh, the Hispanic community. Uh, we've seen uh, in across North Carolina in both urban, suburban, and rural settings how this virus targets, again, that density of population. And so congregate living facilities have been a particular uh, concern. Uh, home to many of our older citizens who already have underlying health conditions uh, that make them more vulnerable. And of course, the, to the healthcare workers that, that work in those congregate living facilities. Um, the New York Times reported that about a third of COVID-19 deaths across the country were directly attributable to these congregate living facilities. Um, and, but in the state of North Carolina, it's about half of our total deaths uh, in, in that context. Uh, so another very concerning trend. Um, and then finally, we've seen a spike across the country, North Carolina being one of those places, we have a lot of meat processing facilities. Mm -hmm. uh, they are heavily, they are located in our rural communities. We have about 13 rural counties that have mm -hmm. um, some cases that are related to a, a meat processing facility that's located um, there. Um, and that disproportionately affects our, um, our Latinx uh, citizens. So that is also a particular concern. Um, you know, as, as it continues to, um, to unfold, we're going to continue to watch it closely. We're looking at the unemployment claims statistics. We now have county level information. Um, it, it, that data lags significantly, so it's hard to get a real-time picture. Uh, we've seen the March numbers. We know uh, even in rural areas, women are more likely to have had their job affected by the pandemic uh, than men. About 60% of total uninsured uh, uninsurance claims or uh, unemployment claims are coming from uh, women uh, who have uh, been for, been laid off or have lost their jobs. Um, th that is uh, different from, for example, than what we saw following the Great Recession. I think we all hope for a very sharp rebound, a V-shaped curve, if you will, uh, that we bounce back very quickly. But I think we 
uh, are seeing signs that uh, this will not be an immediate bounce back. Uh, it'll be a more gradual one. That'll have implications for local governments. They'll have impl uh, implications for our um, small business community, uh, particularly in rural North Carolina. Yeah. Patrick, I'm, I'm reading as you are um, the words of analysts and pundits. They're already venturing uh, their best guesses on how life and business and education and healthcare will be different going forward. I know on April the 28th, there was an article in the News and Observer about businesses. Um, most at risk, as we know, are theaters and bars and restaurants and co-working spaces and one suggestion is this virus will shape architecture and building design in the future. There'll be less open space for collaboration and, uh, you know, no more big uh, assembly halls. Uh, a writer in The Atlantic, Derek Thompson, said the pandemic will change America retail forever. You know, big chains will get bigger as mom and pop businesses and mainstream enterprises uh, falter. E-commerce will flourish and uh, Thompson said that the golden age of restaurants is, is over. Uh, all of these prognostications that I've read so far presume an urban and a metropolitan context. Uh, you have your pulse on what's happening in rural America and rural North Carolina, so I'll let you weigh in and hazard what you think it might be like for the areas that, uh, that you serve. How will the pandemic, pandemic change rural forever, if it will? I, I do believe uh, the pandemic will lead to some lasting changes. Um, as we've all moved to, to the extent uh, workers can continue working and have an at-home option, and even many of our rural citizens have those options, I think we've all learned a lot about ourselves during this pandemic. I know that is true of, of myself, and it's true of our staff at the Rural Center. Uh, for one thing, we've learned just how productive we can be without physically being in presence of each other um, on a day in and day out basis and how efficient we can be. I've been incredibly impressed with the work output of our staff um, and, and the way we've still been able, uh, though there are definitely some barriers and some challenges, but we've still been able to connect with our audience across rural North Carolina. Uh, we know well that that broadband uh, is one of our uh, particular challenges, and, and there are many gaps that need to be filled in um, across uh, rural North Carolina, include, you know, we need better broadband uh, options right there in Harnett County, where Campbell is, is, is located around that area. Um, but for those places that do have broadband, we see there are some rural public schools, believe it or not, uh, that are very well positioned because of the, the broadband infrastructure that they do have. Uh, so there are places where that is a very good sign. I think one of the opportunities coming out of this is there will be a lot of people, families, uh, there will be some business owners that are gonna make decisions um, about uh, pursuing their business, uh, changing their lifestyle and looking to um, to move to more to less dense areas and less dense populations, I think for those rural communities that are well that are prepared from an infrastructure standpoint uh, to support uh, and attract those kind of individuals that are looking to make a change, that there is real opportunity uh, coming out of this pandemic. Uh, that may be our silver lining. I don't believe it will 
be for every rural community. It will be for those that are well positioned to take advantage of what I believe will be somewhat of a trend. Um, I think in general, North Carolina will fare pretty well uh, on a national level as, as we understand uh, that trend better. Um, on a more challenging side, um, we all know how vulnerable our healthcare delivery system is in rural North Carolina and across rural areas in general across the country. Um, that system was already under a considerable amount of, of, of strain. As this pandemic has unfolded, it led to um, a, a cessation of um, a lot of inpatient activities and services being performed at, the, at a time of pandemic. Uh, sometimes those were the only uh, or the best revenue streams that a healthcare delivery system had. Those went away and, and essentially ceased to exist. So a financially vulnerable system became even more vulnerable before the cases really started to show up. So we're really concerned about the viability and, and what happens to our healthcare delivery system as we go forward. Uh, we know that there are 600,000 uninsured North Carolinians before the pandemic across the state. Those 600,000 were disproportionately rural citizens. Uh, we also know that as we look at this spike in unemployment claims and as people have lost jobs, they've also lost healthcare benefits or they have uh, an opportunity for COBRA insurance that they can't afford. Um, that's even less affordable than, uh, than some other options. So we're, when it comes to just the whole area of healthcare delivery and the health of our rural citizens, um, that is probably my greatest concern coming out of this is what is the condition, condition of those systems and how might it change uh, the trajectory of, of rural hospitals and, and other rural uh, health delivery systems. Yeah. And we've talked about this before. This is a concern we have here, which is one of the reasons at Campbell, we're putting a stress on um, primary care in underserved areas, primarily rural. And um, well, if I could just add one thing, I, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to, to visit the medical school there. You know, the, the unique approach that you all are bringing to how you deploy your residents uh, into, into programs, into rural health delivery systems, not as single uh, primary care providers, but as a group, uh, a larger group. Of I think that is just really innovative, and um, we applaud you for that that impact that you're having. Well, thank you. We, we do know that if, um, if people will go to underserved areas in their residencies, there's, there's a stronger likelihood of them staying there to practice for the duration and getting those residencies set up and getting the people there is a challenge. I think the other part is that people have to fill a call. So, um, you know, I'm right. giving the equivalent of an altar call sometime, you know, for, for these bright students to think about going to a place where they can make a good life and make a living, but really make a difference. And, uh, you know, you mentioned broadband. We've talked about this before. I still think that is one of the key issues facing rural America and, and small towns because it will help education. It will help the very area that you've just talked about with, um, you know, the delivery of medical care and telemedicine. We found out as, as we shut down here that we actually had some employees who found it difficult to work from home and some students that we had to allow stay here because 
they did not have internet capabilities or Wi-Fi where they were. And so it just, uh, you know, illustrated uh, this point that, that we've been discussing. Uh, some people have said, Patrick, that um, cities are going to be less desirable places to live in for the near future. Um, the people that have an urban focus say, well, eventually when people leave, the rent will go down and people can afford to, to go back again and then cities will repopulate and bring in the creative class and, and so forth. But, um, you know, as you mentioned, there is a possibility for some out-migration from the cities to small towns. Uh, people have been speculating about this for years. I remember all the way back to the 1980s, there was a rural sociologist that worked somewhere out on the high plains, and I read about him in Mother Earth News and the Utney Reader, and with uh, the explosion of information technology, he was predicting that rural America would repopulate as people could work remotely, and uh, it didn't really happen. The tr trends are inexorable. There's uh, more of an out-migration of population from rural areas. And so we've talked for years about the brain drain. The best and the brightest leave those towns, but there might be, um, some people have chronicled this, a countervailing trend of a brain gain. And this would be the time when those people that you mentioned would see um, a desirable life and possibilities in the towns that are prepared for them and have heavy infrastructure. So do you see this going on anywhere, sort of the countervailing trend of the brain gain back to small towns and micropolitan areas? You know, I think you can find places across rural North Carolina that, that even before the pandemic were seeing, a, seeing the benefit of um, some of the quality of life issues that they had tackled locally and they had largely done it for the benefit of their own citizens and had had some, some degree of success with it. And it was having the ancillary benefit of attracting some newcomers. Um, I think the COVID-19 pandemic really um, is the, because of the size, the scale, the scope, the density, um, and the urban nature um, of it, it, particularly in the way that its most devastating impacts have, have manifested themselves. It is the only thing that I can think of, uh, you know, in, in, in our recent history that suggests um, a potential trend away from urbanization. That, and, and there's been a strong global trend. We see it clearly evidence in our state. You're exactly right. The areas that have lost population are about uh, 43 rural counties in the state of North Carolina since 2010 have lost population. That's about half of our rural counties. Um, the other half have, have seen slight gains in, in population. Um, all rural is not created equal. There's a lot of diversity across rural North Carolina and how those communities are doing economically. Also, there's a lot of d diversity across uh, that geography. Um, but I do think uh, the opportunity exists for, um, for there to be a, a brain gain in some places. I think there are some real kind of fundamental building blocks that need to be in place. Uh, a relatively strong, relatively healthy healthcare delivery system is going to be important. 
broadband infrastructure is going to be absolutely critical and the places that don't have it and and unfortunately there are far too many um, in rural North Carolina that don't have it are 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 not going to be the places where that happens um, so you know there's going to be some really unique aspects of it I also don't think, and maybe the COVID-19 pandemic gives us an opportunity to get much better at thinking um, um, about how we retain our own uh, rural youth as they grow and mature. Um, I've always thought we looked at that a, a little wrong in that um, you know, we, we've done a great job of raising scholarship funds at a local level so that every graduating senior from a high school gets a, a, a scholarship to go away to school. Um, but what we have not done is enough um, work starting even in middle school to help young people and their parents understand what their opportunities are right there at home. We need public school teachers. We need primary care physicians, we need dentists, we need, uh, we need Campbell lawyers. Uh, I don't know the small town across the state of North Carolina doesn't have a Campbell lawyer or two that have been a, a great benefit to that community. There are real opportunities, uh, even in advanced manufacturing, um, for people to live a good life and, and return home. And I don't think we do a good enough job of showing them those opportunities and then working to help them um, go after those opportunities. Uh, yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons Campbell started a law school 40 years ago, not just to be a more complete university or uh, to give people a great career, but to serve the, the small places. And last time I checked, we have Campbell lawyers in about 98 out of a uh, hundred of our counties. And, and that's that's one of the altar call pitches that I make to uh, you know rising uh, law students to think about going to these places. And I often tell them, and you'll understand this, you know, one lawyer in a small town will struggle to make a living, but, but two can do pretty well uh, if if they know how to work with each other. If you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, um, and this course that I taught that that I that I have developed and teach that you know about discovering underserved communities. One of the things that I like the most about it is having these students come from these small towns, and it's like a fish thinking about water. That's all they've known. But when we actually give them analytical tools and have them do research, they find out things about their rural communities and small towns that that they had never thought about before, and they they see challenges in a different way and opportunities and so that's why education is 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 so important um you and i love small towns i've lived in several um i tell people i've lived in three cities of over a million people but i also lived in a town one time smaller than Bowie's creek it was uh, when we were near waco uh, there were two towns that they put together bruce filetti into one incorporated area like Uquay barina but the two of them together only made 1,069 people in Bowie's Creek minus the student population has about 2,200 people. Um, but I, I want to ask you this question. It's one I think about and I, I pose to, to my guests and interlocutors. Is the small town still integral to the American narrative? And is it essential to our national character and identity? And I, I expect you to say yes. So tell us why. Yeah, I, I absolutely would say yes, and and I do think um, 
perhaps uh, has taken on renewed uh, or a new relevance for a new reason uh, as we come out of this uh, this pandemic. Um, I think even, I mean, even in urban areas, if you look at the real trends toward how urban areas are developing in many ways, it is within cities. Um, what has been the real trend has been developing, um, you know, neighborhoods within themselves where people have a sense of place, a sense of belonging. Um, those are the key attributes of, of our rural small towns is you do feel like you belong. You feel like a part of this place, the life of this place, you feel connected to it, you feel invested in it, and we don't have to, you know, to create that, to manufacture that. Um, I think there, um, there are great examples across the state of North Carolina of, of rural small towns that have articulated their unique place in their in the world. They sit in a unique geography. They relate to the th to their region, to the to the rest of the state, and to the world in very unique ways. And the wonders and the ones that truly understand their context within that broader reg regional picture, the broader state picture, and the world picture. I think are the ones that have have really taken on a, a, a relevant. And we don't need to forget in North Carolina, we are a state of small towns. Uh, the way the Rural Center looks at our state, we have six core urban uh, counties. We have 14 regional cities, suburban counties. We have still 80 rural counties with population densities less than 250 people per square mile. Within those 80 counties, um, there are 432 of our 532 municipalities. Uh, so an incredible number of small and even very small towns across the state. Yeah. That being said, I don't think they all will survive. Um, you know, communities exist for an economic reason. They were formed, they came about for an economic reason. Our state has undergone, uh, undergone tremendous economic change in the first two decades of the 21st century. And many places don't have that economic reason um, for, for being. And it's through, it's through no fault of their own. It's through a changing world. It's through a changing, uh, evolving economy that has not played out to their, to their benefit. But I do believe many of our small towns are incredibly viable. Yeah, and that's a part of the American narrative, too. Um, there are places that time leaves behind. I, I know in, in my home county in Texas, there was a community called New Birmingham. They wanted to be the Birmingham of Texas with steel production. And, uh, you know, the, the woods had grown up over it. Wallace Stegner, uh, a writer primarily from the American West, says there, there are two kinds of people in American history. There are the the, the boomers and the stickers, you know, those that are going to look for the next opportunity and then those that are going to stay where they are. But sometimes the opportunity um, is depleted, and, and that's a part of the narrative as, as well, um, too. So um, I, I know you're sold on small towns, and it's like preaching to the choir, but um, I think it's important to reflect upon that. Well, just a, a few more questions here that might be of a more personal nature, but I think will give us sure. an insight into the work that you do and, and just, uh, you know, what's, what's happening in small towns in our area. Now, students here know that I'm going to ask them 
what their high school mascot was. And if we had multiple people on this call, I would even give a prize at the end for who has the, the most outstanding or unique mascot. So where'd you go to high school and what was your high school mascot? I, I'm an Allegheny Trojan. So I went to Allegheny High School. Okay. Well, I've done enough uh, study of world cultures to know that I don't think the Trojans in their, their march to glory uh, conquered ancient parts of North Carolina, but it was a great mascot <laughs> for you, right? That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. correct. What do you like best about what you do as the president of the Rural Center? That's an easy question. Uh, I have very fond memories uh, and still uh, a love for the community where I grew up. Um, I'm uh, an only child of absolutely great parents. Um, I found my little community of Piney Creek in Allegheny County to be a a tremendously nurturing place that set me up to do anything I wanted in life and and nothing was really foreclosed to me in terms of those opportunities. So I've been very grateful for that. It's very much a part of, of who I am and being at the Rural Center and the way my career has evolved over time, I cannot think of any place I would rather be and any work that I would rather be doing. Uh, We are blessed to live in a beautiful state, uh, a state that is incredibly diverse from the mountains to the coast. We have vibrant urban centers. We have some of the most beautiful small towns you'll find anywhere. And I'm one of the probably few people that has had the opportunity to be in, in most every nook and cranny, no matter how small, uh, of rural North Carolina. It's a beautiful place uh, with beautiful people that really care about their place, want their place to be better. Um, and, I, and I work in a career that's all about, you know, working hand in hand with them to try to achieve their dreams for their community. And I can't think of anything I would rather do. Yeah. Well, I'm with you on North Carolina. I'm not native to this place, but I I got here as quickly as I could. It took me about (laughs) six decades. And, um, you know, that's hard to say for a native Texan because uh, native Texans think it's their birthright to at some point go back to their their native state and die on Texas soil. But um, it's just a wonderful state. And um, Wendell Berry has a quote that means a lot to me. He said, um, unless you know where you're from, you can't say where you're going. And I think um, those of us who grew up in small towns know how formative place was, our, certainly our families, but, but the institutions that are there that shaped us and set a trajectory for our lives. And, um, and I, that's a big part of why you do what you do and, and who you are. So, Patrick, what is your favorite down-home, backwoods, countryfied thing to do? Well, that would have to be, you know, about once a year floating in an inner tube lazily down the New River in in my home county of of Allegheny. Oh, wow. That's a beautiful river. I understand it's one of the oldest on the continent, and um, I've not had the chance to float. I'm a kayaker and canoeer. I haven't been down that yet, but it's on my list. Yeah, it, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful river. Yeah, well, mine's eating cornbread. Um, I'm just as country as cornbread when it comes to my favorite food. And um, my wife, through genealogical research, found a, a distant cousin who's a lawyer in Texas. I think they share great great grandmothers, and 
he's compiled old recipes and she speculates that the cornbread recipe she uses um, was maybe one that was cooked by her great great grandmother and and of course if you're from the south you know there's there's one thing you absolutely do not do with cornbread and that's put sugar in it that's exactly. cornbread <laughs> or, or we call that cake and then um, that's right we we also have learned it uh, it it does better with uh, with a cast iron skillet. So oh, absolutely, that's one of my countryfied things to do. Now I'm gonna put well, you on the spot. Go ahead. Just a, just a little aside. I had an uncle who, um, uh, upon being served uh, by a, a a northerner in Pennsylvania, sweet <laughs> sweet cornbread, and informed her that he wanted cornbread, not cake. <laughs> to your exact point. <laughs> yeah. Well, my late father-in-law, I've seen him take cornbread and crumble it in buttermilk, and uh, I, I don't quite go that far. I like for the buttermilk to go in the cornbread rather than my <laughs> cornbread in the buttermilk. Uh, so now I'm going to put you on the spot, and you're very diplomatic, so I'm, I'm going to take notes here as to how, how you, can, you can fill this question here. What is your favorite small town and um, other than the one you grew up in? Oh, now that, that really uh, changed the equation, didn't it? Well, yes, the, one I grew, the one I was born in, the one I grew up in is Sparta. And it, of course, as you suggest, would be my favorite. I guess my next favorite would have to be the second town that I spent the most time in. Uh, and that's the town of, uh, well, and there's really, you don't know when you leave Jefferson and in, enter West Jefferson, but in neighboring Ashe County, there's, there are the town, towns of Jefferson and West Jefferson. And the thing I love about West Jefferson is going there today and seeing how vibrant and alive that downtown is, yeah. how they use the local arts and the local music, uh, traditional music to really lead the revitalization of, of downtown West Jefferson. You have a hard time finding a parking place. It, it, it has a great uh, sense of belonging. Uh, it's one of the few towns I know of when, that Walmart came to town and downtown flourished. Uh, but I think that's due to their unique location in the, the mountains of, of North Carolina uh, and building a diversified, strong economy. They still have a strong um, manufacturing and advanced manufacturing base. They have a strong agricultural base but they've built a strong tourism base. And part of that is sitting, you know, adjacent to a, a college, a major college town. Uh, they've benefited some from, from, from that. Uh, but I would probably have to, to say, uh, seeing how that change has evolved, I, I would put them next to my own hometown uh, as my favorite. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, my wife and I went over there back in January um, and we had not seen that area. I had a student in West Jefferson, and we actually, it was in January, it was cold and raining. In fact, we had to come home early. We were afraid we were getting into some ice up in the mountains, but uh, we went to Sparta, and I came into Jefferson first, and then West Jefferson, and it's a vibrant downtown, and um, there are just lots of lovely and inspiring small towns in, in North Carolina, I think, in, in our state in particular. So there's, thank you for sharing sure that. Yeah. Uh, Patrick, thank you for the very important and consequential work you're doing at the Rural Center and um, what you're doing to help the people of rural and underserved areas. And uh, we wish you the best and uh, stay safe during this time and 
usually when I do a video, I say go camels, but um, I'll say Godspeed and thank you for joining us. Thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And again, I want to give a shout out to Campbell, the incredible work you're doing specifically with that school and your student base over the years and, and in recent years. That, so proud of that new engineering class that's graduate. You're graduating your first class of engineers this, this uh, spring, I believe, uh, and the incredible yes. impact that your graduates have on rural North Carolina communities. Patrick Woody, president of the North Carolina Rural Center, my guest today on Campbell Conversations. Thank you and join us again for a podcast coming soon. Thank you. Campbell Conversations is hosted by Campbell University President Jay Bradley Creed and it's produced by me, Billy Liggett, Director of News and Publications. This first episode of Dr. Creed's podcast was recorded via Zoom on May 13th, 2020. Music is courtesy of Purple Planet. Thank you for listening. <laughs>